Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and this month's episode is all about how politicians misuse and misrepresent science. The idea for this episode was inspired by Dave Levitan's book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent and Utterly Mangle Science. I caught up with Dave and asked him what had inspired him to write this book. The idea for it arose from when I spent uh, about a year on staff at factcheck.org, um, which, as I'm sure you know, is a, a site that um, looks into claims made by politicians and explains why they're wrong. So they hired me uh, in early 2015 uh, as their first ever science writer. They had covered some science before, but it, not in sort of a very directed fashion. So they got a grant and they to, to hire a specific science writer, and they hired me to do that. Uh, and very quickly in that job, I started to see some patterns, basically, to, you know, the way that politicians get science wrong. It sort of follows the, this sort of set of, of of similar devices and techniques. And I just decided, you know, it seems like sort of a, a good idea to, to collect those. So that was the, the basis for this. And uh, honestly, it's it's not that hard to find them in a way. I mean, because politicians get science wrong so much, uh, I didn't lack for material, I guess. Professor Tara Shears is a professor of particle physics at the University of Liverpool. And Tara has reviewed Dave's book for Physics World, so I caught up with her to get her take on it. I thought this book was really fascinating, actually. I started reading it, and it was very entertaining. And the sort of read that well, that you would really annoy everybody that you live with, because you would just be calling them over and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe this, listen to this, this is absolutely terrible. Because what Dave Leverton does is he gives you example after example of all the different ways American politicians have subverted science to suit their own political ends. And I think he identifies 12 different types of subversion and gives plentiful examples, enough to keep you reading with your head in your hands simultaneously, really depressed for the future of mankind. But at least finishes off every chapter with some plans to help you recognise when this sort of strategy is being used and to try and think of ways to combat it, to think around it, wonder where the context is coming from and how you might actually get hold of the information. So it's also a really useful handbook for survival in a post-truth world, I think. Is this idea of a post-truth or a post-truth world, is it really a new idea? It's certainly an approach which is reported more widely than it has been before. And not just in America either. We've seen particularly with the European referendum, this sort of post-truth approach coming out far more widely than I can remember it having done in the past. In the book, it dates back to Ronald Reagan and his first infamous use of the phrase, I'm not a scientist, but... <laughs> back in the times of acid rain and and the 1980s. Now, the quote in the title of the book and that Tara is referring to is from Ronald Reagan when he said, I'm not a scientist and I don't know the figures, but I have a suspicion that one little mountain has probably released more sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere of the world than has been released in the last 10 years of automobile driving or things of that kind that people are so concerned about. Now, obviously, if you look at the science of that, he is completely wrong. Completely wrong. 
But the fact that he was completely wrong was lost on so many people who heard that statement. Now this last week I've been at Cheltenham Science Festival with scientists and science communicators from around the world. And in the green room, the conversation often turned to politics. This is Professor Alice Roberts, Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at Birmingham University. I think one of the really frustrating things for any scientist and anybody interested in science is the way that science gets misused by politicians. Now, I do not expect every policy to be made purely based on scientific evidence. There are many different requirements feeding into policy making. But what frustrates me is when politicians either ignore the scientific evidence to begin with or they use it to support a particular policy when actually it's, it's not supporting a policy. I wish they would say, we've looked at the scientific evidence, but we've decided to do this instead, rather than pretending that they're doing what they're doing because of the scientific evidence. They just need to be a bit more honest about it. I also had a chat with Ellen Stofan, who's the former chief scientist at NASA. And one of her concerns was how distant science is from the policymaking. If you don't have scientific experts around you and technology experts, if you're not seeking out those opinions, you're going to make decisions that are ill-informed and potentially decisions that have really negative consequences, whether it's worrying about the latest outbreak of Ebola, whether it's worrying about switching to renewables and how reliable they are. How do we worry about security in other countries in terms of potential climate refugees of the future? And frankly, a lot of scientists have pointed out the drought in Syria is linked to climate change, is part of what precipitated all the issues in Syria, creating obviously a lot of refugees that have destabilized a lot of the world. These are things that affect government decisions on a day-to-day basis. So this is a topic which is clearly on the minds of scientists. And Dave Levitan's book couldn't be more timely. But I wondered if today's political landscape, and particularly for him in America, Donald Trump's presidency, had kick-started this idea for him. No, no, I wouldn't say it kick-started it. It certainly has changed um, the way the book is sort of being received and, and perceived now. Um, but I can't say that it, you know, it, it, it sort of kick-started it anyway because I wrote this before Trump was even really relevant. <laughs> I started working on the idea, sort of, I guess he had just declared his candidacy. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline here, but I really wrote it fairly quickly, and it was quite a while ago at this point. So he, he was a candidate when I finished writing it, but he was not yet the front runner. He was not yet the nominee. I was doing this well before he became an issue, and that, you know, that concept of alternative facts, which really has, you know, sort of just arisen recently. You know, now that that is an issue, people are looking at this these techniques that I describe in the book of, of how to sort of spot some of the, the errors on science in a very different way. But yeah, it would have been nice, I guess, to have this sort of thing sort of available to be discussed earlier. So that's Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, but we're certainly not immune to this sort of thing here in the UK. Here's Tara Shears again. I find it profoundly depressing that after the whole European referendum campaign, where it was very, very, very difficult to obtain facts and to combat things that weren't facts, to now have an election campaign where facts have been removed. I mean, where is society going? It's not even post-fact now, it's post-content. It's ridiculous. It now seems to become acceptable to say that although you're not an expert, your opinion is even better and more worthy and people should be listening to you. And this is a real switch, I think, in the way 
society is prepared to consider evidence and facts. It's a subversion, if you like, of the normal method of evaluating information, evaluating data, and coming to conclusions based on that data and in an objective way. At the same time, this idea that you can simultaneously claim not to be an expert, but yet place yourself in a better position than an expert to pronounce upon something, turns logic upside down. The politicians, you can kind of understand why the politicians would, would want to twist things for their own ends. But, but how does it happen that in the mind of the general public, that the, the phrase, I'm not a scientist, but, or we've had enough of experts, or I think the man in the street knows, how is that 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 speaks to people? What is wrong with, if you want, science communication, that people don't see that that's just the wrong way of looking at it? That's such a big question. If that works as an argument, then as scientists, we're not doing our job at all at explaining what we're doing and why it's important and why it matters to people. And that's something that we really have to address. And I think perhaps one of the reasons that this approach has gained a foothold is that it's such anathema to scientists to think in this way that we haven't combated it at all because we just can't imagine that anybody would actually think that that is a valid way to argue. So we are our own worst enemies if we're, if we're not careful about this. I asked Dave Levitan for his take on this idea that people could actually be swayed by this concept of somebody not being an expert, not being a scientist, not having the knowledge, the expertise, how that is an argument that can convince people to listen to them on a topic. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it's a pretty infuriating uh, talking point. I, it's amazing that it persisted as long as it did, and in fact has even been sort of revived recently. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre thing to do because politicians don't do that for anything else. They don't tell us that they're not an expert in other things that they are equally not expert in, right? I mean, they don't tell us that they're not an economist when they talk about tax reform. But they're probably not. They're probably lawyers. Most of them in the U.S. are lawyers. So <laughs> unless they're talking about something to do with the law, they're not an expert at any of it. But they only do this with science. And I think it's because science feels to many people like like a, an area that, that is unknowable almost, that is sort of so far off from our general experience, that by saying you're not a scientist you're you're connecting with people right like oh i i i'm not so i'm not the nerd over in the corner who's actually a scientist clearly it was effective in certain ways it it wasn't effective in others i mean i mentioned in the book that a republican strategist called it the dumbest talking point in the history of mankind clearly some people recognized it for what it was i feel i must warn you that the conversations that i had with both tara and dave did on regular occasions lead to this kind of exasperation with the state of the world of politics at the moment but do stick with it because dave and tara have really good practical ideas about how if you feel that same exasperation how you can do something about it and that's coming later in the podcast but before that, I want to delve more into these techniques that politicians use. Here's Dave Levitan again. The book is, is organized in, into this series of rhetorical tricks or devices or errors that, that politicians make and then with examples of politicians using those. So some of them will, will sound pretty familiar, something like the oversimplification, which is exactly what it sounds like. Politicians will often boil down a complicated scientific topic into very simple, overly simple terms in order to make a political point or to advance an agenda. 
it's important to remember, obviously, that that can be useful, obviously. It's a skill, and it's a useful skill to be able to explain something complicated in simple terms. But if you're using that device as a way to completely hide the reality of the scientific issue, then you're doing everybody a disservice. Some of the ones that I sort of made up names for, uh, things like the butter up and undercut, uh, which is um, a technique where politicians will talk about generally a, a, a thing, a scientific-related topic that is popular, so something like cancer research. It's generally a thing that most of the public is in favor of. We should do research into cancer. But then, so they'll talk about it in positive terms, they'll butter it up, but then they will at the same time sort of try and hide the fact that they're cutting off its funding, which is a common theme, uh, you know, in the U.S. at least, where the, a lot of politicians are always trying to find ways to cut funding, uh, often for scientific research. So the certain uncertainty uh, is a, a technique where politicians will highlight the unknowns, the uncertainty inherent in some scientific field as a way to delay or completely you know, remove the possibility for doing anything about it. This is very common with climate change, as one might imagine. People love to say, oh, well, we're not sure what's going to happen. There's still a degree of uncertainty about you know, how fast the sea will rise or something like that. And that somehow becomes an argument for not doing anything about it. It's a complete... Uh, sort of mischaracterization of how science is done. I mean, obviously, every bit of scientific research has uncertainty, but that should never be a reason to to simply ignore the issue. There are a couple of things where I was just flabbergasted that they could use these techniques. One in particular is, and I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but but they blame immigrants for diseases. Mm. And going deeper than that, they blame immigrants for diseases that have, like measles, that have, yes. that have been brought back by the actions of the anti-science movement. Exactly, yeah. Now, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I named that technique the demonizer. It's very specific to to disease and, um, and health issues. Interestingly, I think that might be the oldest of the techniques that I've found. Um, you can really find examples of politicians doing this going back a hundred years. What's interesting is that if you go back far enough, at times the arguments might have had some kernel of truth to them. There was a time when you know, people coming into the United States, but probably to the UK as well, were coming from places where healthcare was, was a lot worse, and people might have brought diseases with them that were... Um, you know, not really known in that country. However, that has changed long ago, but politicians insist on still using this, where they, they really use this fear of disease that, you know, anyone would have, understandably, to connect it to a fear of immigration and to fear of people from other countries. And it's, it's pretty insidious in a way. I mean, and it results in some pretty um, sort of dark policy decisions made over the years. I mean, in spite of your sort of visceral reaction to it, it's incredibly common here. I mean, and, and not only... Um, there was one example I discussed in the book where, where they not only blame diseases on, on people coming from other countries, but specifically children. They were blaming undocumented children coming from various countries in Central America uh, who are escaping, you know, very bad conditions at home to try and come to the U.S. They were blaming measles outbreaks, as well as some other diseases, such as enteroviruses, on those children, which which did strike me as sort of monstrous. Now, I may be wrong on this, and please do correct me if I'm wrong. I really hope that I'm not, but I just can't imagine a U.K. politician getting away with that kind of thing. Overtly and clearly incorrectly blaming immigrants and children for diseases i can't begin to say how i feel about that 
Professor Raymond Tallis is a doctor, a philosopher, a poet, a polymath. And he's very concerned about the way that politicians misuse science. When it comes to the use that politicians make of science, I, as a scientist, if I had any hair, I'd be tearing it out in lumps. There's several ways you can misuse science. One is to pretend you've got evidence-based policy when actually you've got policy-based evidence. But that you have huge support in the media who are very much used to cherry-picking data and even I had a million pounds to put into journalism, my million pounds would go into insisting on denominators every time we have a figure, because they are especially uh, able to produce staggering figures without ever putting them in any kind of perspective. Health tourism is one example. Actually, by the way, we are greater exporters of health tourists than we are importers. But, you know, the problem of health tourism probably accounts for less than 0.5% of the turnover in the NHS. One of the most wicked examples, and I speak as a medic now, was Jeremy Hunt's use of the increase in weekend mortality. And when you'd actually corrected for the different kind of patients who come in as emergencies, there was no increase in weekend mortality. Nothing significant anyway. It certainly was not related to the wrong kind of doctors with the wrong kinds of contracts. What, do you have a sense of why he would want to misuse the data in that way? He has his own agenda. More from Professor Raymond Tallis in next month's Physics World when we'll be talking about something a little less controversial, the science of music. Now, the vast majority of examples of politicians misusing science in Dave Levitan's book do come from the Republican Party. And I did put that to him. I do not intend that as a partisan statement. I, I address this in the introduction. This isn't meant to be a partisan book. It really just so happens that one of the two major parties in the U.S. has really sort of abandoned mainstream scientific viewpoints over the last couple of decades. I don't think, I mean, clearly, I am not the first person to say this. So that's why I'm, I, I sort of claim it's not a partisan statement. There have been entire books written about how Republicans are bad at science. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't mean it to be a, a sort of a statement. That's just sort of the way it is. There are Democrats in the book. Um, they do make some errors. There are some topics where that seem to sort of cross party lines a little bit more. Uh, genetically modified organisms is one that always comes to mind for that. Doesn't seem to quite follow the same patterns. I, I'm not advocating any particular policy positions or anything. I'm just advocating for people getting science right. And one party is bad at that right now. It might change someday in the future. Who knows? But for now, that's, that's just sort of the case. Here's Tara Shears again. I saw a poll that was carried out in 2014 of about 114 MPs asking them about their views on the importance of climate change. And of this collection of MPs, 10 out of 57 Conservative MPs agreed with the statement that it was environmentalist propaganda with little or no evidence. And one out of 51 Labour MPs agreed with the statement. There are MPs there that are climate change sceptics. But the policies that the government passes generally are supportive of changes that combat climate change to some extent. I understand that the scientific evidence is one input into devising policy and there are other concerns that have to come into play when you're devising policy. That's fine. It's the politics that get me when politicians feel free to come out with phrases saying, for example, particularly about climate change that seems to attract opinions like this, that it's a myth based on dodgy science, which is something that the former Secretary of the Environment in Northern Ireland actually came out and said. 
whilst he was Secretary of the Environment. Now, under, under what circumstances is it acceptable to come out with a statement like that when it's completely counter to the scientific evidence? Well, I would argue that there probably isn't a time when that's acceptable. <laughs> but in fact, I would argue that with certain things like the climate, the science is the thing that should inform the policy most. I would have thought so too. It depends where one puts one's priorities. I understand that there are issues with trade, with one's place in the world, etc. But if you're looking at mankind's long-term future, if you're taking a much bigger view, then surely you have to look at the scientific evidence to really evaluate what's going on. There have been several studies that have been done, like the Stern report, that even quantify the economic impact of doing something to combat climate change or not doing it. Not just ignore the scientific evidence, but the economic evidence of taking no notice of what's going on, you would think would be irrefutable. You would think it would take somebody utterly blind not to take this into account. And yet, there are some really horrendous quotes out there. I was looking, uh, after I read the book, I thought, well, everything here is based in America. I'm so relieved in the UK that we don't seem to have politicians that come out with, with these sorts of quotes. But as soon as you start investigating, particularly when it comes up uh, to climate change, you realise that, in fact, there are politicians who do make very similar claims following the sorts of strategies that Dave has outlined in his book. Statements which flatly ignore the body of evidence claiming that climate change is a gigantic con. <laughs> this method where you ridicule an area of science in order to dismiss it I found quite insidious. I spent quite a long time trying to think of examples of this in the UK that weren't in America, and it's depressingly easy to start finding examples of things that you could put into that category. And there's a quote from Nigel Lawson, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, who says, I think the ordinary bloke has an instinctive sense that it wouldn't be too bad if the weather warmed up dismissing climate change evidence and research in one fell swoop there yeah and they, that's one of the techniques that dave levitan talks about in the in the book this idea of oversimplification and as you say it just completely dismisses all the research that goes into it it completely ignores all the different aspects of the climate and just concentrates on one aspect of it oversimplifying it and becoming a catchy soundbite but how much can we say that that's a deliberate technique rather than just somebody who's not understood it and it's a mistake that they've made i don't i definitely don't want to overclaim because it's very impossible to tell what people's motivations are when you read interviews with politicians you're lacking the bigger context you're but having taken all that into account there are still some things that people come out with that you just cannot see justification for it's very hard to see the justification behind a statement like one of the ones that Nigel, one of the many ones that Nigel Farage has made, saying we may have made one of the, the biggest and most stupid collective mistakes in history by getting so worried about global warming. It's a clever statement because it offers no evidence to then start to try and unpick and have a, a conversation and a discussion about. It's a very sweeping statement, and Nigel Farage is not making any claims to be an expert. It's just his opinion. But it's that sort of opinion and catchy soundbite that lodges in your head. It's, it's very easy for that to just be a little more accepted more easily than someone coming up and saying there's a 90% chance that the sea level will rise by this much 
and cause us more probability of floods, which is more distant, it's more abstract, it's harder to get one's head round. I feel I must apologise that this episode of Physics World is not my usual excited, enthused, delighted self with some a wonderful new aspect of research or something, but I, I think it's a really important topic. And I, I have to say as well that, the, that Dave Levitan's book itself is a really entertaining read. It is quite a challenging topic to read if you want to have a positive outlook on the world. But there are, as Tara says, some really positive actions that we all can take to combat it. And they're coming up later in the podcast. But there's something that's always troubled me with these politicians who claim not to believe in climate science. Do they really believe that climate science isn't real or is it just because they have to say that because their friends are making loads of money out of it? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question and it's it's a depressing question, obviously. Um, I, I mean, I have I have some guesses. It's I, I don't think... I mean... In the, in the U.S., right? I mean, you get when there's any sort of climate-related legislation or anything, it breaks perfectly along party lines, pretty much, right? Like the, everyone in Congress who's a Republican votes one way and everyone who's a Democrat votes the other way. I find it impossible to believe that that's how the scientific understanding also breaks among all those, those officials. Um, so clearly people are voting against what they actually understand. Which is, I mean, and I actually have have heard um, members of Congress tell. I, I interviewed a a member of Congress who also is a physicist, and so he is sort of the only scientist really in Congress. And he told me that he has had conversations with with Republican politicians who sort of you know vote against anything related to climate uh, mitigation or adaptation, and they they tell him privately that they do understand it, but they can't vote for it because not necessarily because, you know, because of fossil fuel companies are supporting their campaigns, although I'm sure that's part of it, but because they're, they're scared of losing elections back home. So it, it's a very depressing state of affairs when we have politicians admitting that they are getting the science wrong in how they vote and how they talk publicly. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know how best to do that except to convince the public, right? To get the public to, to hold their own elected officials accountable for, for that sort of thing. Why is it important for, science, for politicians to get the science right? Well, if they are getting science right, then that means we are going to address, you know, very large, occasionally existential issues uh, in, in scientifically appropriate fashion. I mean, Things like, I mean, we've talked about climate change, we've talked about vaccines, we've, we've already, and public health. These sorts of things obviously do have, you know, political, social, social, cultural inputs, but they are at root scientific issues. So if politicians sort of, if their baseline was just to listen to experts, to listen to what uh, existing research tells us, then chances are we're going to be moving in the right direction on those issues. If instead they listen to those those fossil fuel companies or to special interest groups or to the very loud minority of people who say don't want to vaccinate their children, then you know we're, we're going to have policies that reflect that. And those policies can be hugely damaging. I mean, obviously climate change is the big one. The hugely damaging version there is to do nothing about it until until the seas rise by 10 feet and, and everything sort of goes to hell. But so, I mean, you can, you can draw a fairly straight line from politicians addressing science in, a, in scientifically appropriate fashion to 
scientifically appropriate policy, right? And so, and if we let them ignore those, you know, the the actual uh, research that tells them tells us where we should be heading, then we're just not going to head there. So, what can we do about this? You know, there, there, it's a it's a few steps in that process, right? I mean, it's it's the public learning about these things so that we can then hold politicians accountable. Media coverage needs to improve, and I'll include myself since I'm a journalist. But, um, you know, if we all do better at telling stories that grab attention and, and also educate the public, maybe that would help sort of push, move the needle a little bit. You know, it, it sort of takes all of us working on this a little bit. But if we just let them say whatever they want on science, then then the policy response to that is going to be pretty disastrous. And as promised, here's Professor Tarashir's. <laughs> There's plenty we can do. This is actually the positive aspect of the book. So after getting you really depressed by all these nefarious carryings on, there is positive action that we can take. We don't have to sit back and take a lack of content and a lack of facts for granted. That doesn't have to be the status quo. If our politicians and our press aren't giving us the information, then if we have access to it, we share it ourselves. We can help. We can can fill in the gaps. Look at claims that are coming out. Do they seem to be really outrageous? Well, there's probably a good chance that they are. Try and find out the supporting evidence. Now, it's a lot easier in some areas than it is in other areas. That's true. But do your, do your best to investigate claims. Do your best to try and find out if things are being stacked up on a really insufficient foundation. And if you can see that scientific evidence is being misused, call it out. You know, don't be quiet about it. This is a problem. And we have access to sufficient social media. We have access to RMPs. It's very easy to be able to call this out with the evidence in a, in a reasonable way, but a way that's nonetheless important to hold it to account because this is important. We've spent hundreds of years building up a scientific method and an objective way of evaluating evidence. We do not want to see it lost. It's really valuable. So make sure that you do this. And if you feel more strongly about it, then make your views known. Go on the marches for science when they, when they happen. And try wherever you can to talk about the science that you do if you're a scientist in a way that people can understand it. Make that effort to make it clear and relatable for people. And be open and answer questions and answer their concerns and do what, do what you can there too. And we can do something about it. We really can. Thank you so much to Professor Tara Shears, Dave Levitan, Professor Raymond Tallis, Professor Alice Roberts and Ellen Stofan for talking to me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode full of professors and experts. And if you have anything to say about it, do please send us a tweet at Physics World or post on the Physics World article for this episode. We'd love to hear from you. We've not had enough of experts. And thank you so much for listening. Physics World.